World of Blazing brings you a podcast based on truth, spoken boldly. Join the man on fire, John Sublon, as he takes on issues of faith and culture, always faithful, always real. This is True Faith, Real Talk, and now the man on fire, John Sublon. Welcome to another episode of True Faith, Real Talk. I'm your host, the man on fire, John Sublon of johnsublon.com, and I want to welcome everybody back to another episode and if there was ever a topic that was one of the hottest topics, most controversial topics that we have in our country, in our world today, uh, it would definitely, this would actually be on the list of your top three. And that is the issue of pro-life, the issue of abortion, the fact that so many of our children are being slayed in the womb. And my guest today, um, I was so fortunate and blessed to have her out at our first annual family conference. Um, the Relentless Conference. So some of you have went to that and some of you got to meet uh, my guest, Patricia Sandoval. And um, I, I will just be flat out honest with you. There was about 450 people at that conference. And when Patricia spoke and told her story, um, there was not a dry eye in the room. There were grown men crying and I was definitely one of them. And I am I'm so blessed and so uh, honored and excited about having her on this show because she has a story that is, is reaching the hearts of so many people. Um, she travels the world um, speaking on behalf of the unborn, telling her own story, uh, her escape from drugs and homelessness and the back doors of Planned Parenthood. She's an author, so she co-wrote the book Transfigured. It kind of talks about her life. And I just want to welcome to the show my dear sister in Christ, Patricia Sandoval. Hi, Patricia. Hi, brother in Christ. <laughs> it's a big honor to have um, have you on the show. Uh, I really admire your work as well, as we were speaking before we were on. But um, thank you for all that you do as well. And thank you for having me uh, here today. Yeah, thank you for joining me. I know, and I know your schedule is very busy. You're a new mommy, by the way, right? Yes, my baby is a miracle baby. You know, after having multiple abortions, I didn't know if I could have a baby. Many women can't have an abortion. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, many women can't have a child after one abortion. So my baby is really a gift from God. And I'm, you know, I'm so happy to be this, you know, this new stage in my life. Mm -hmm. When I now when I met you, you were married and you were and you <laughs> were with child. So I am so to be able to be connected, at least social media wise, and to be able to see all the many things that God has blessed you with and has, has um, done in your life as a testimony to what can happen when when you, when you give your life to God. And that's part of the, the reason I wanted to bring you on. So I wanna just start from scratch. I know plenty of people do know you, but just perhaps those that don't know Patricia Sandoval, um, again, I'm gonna encourage everybody to get her book, Transfigured, um, written by, or uh, also written by, or co-written co by, right? Our good friend, Christine, Christine Watkins, and, yes. um, of Queen of Peace Media. So shout out to Christine, we see you out there. Um, uh, but can you just share your story? Because it is a powerful story of uh, whatever that, what, when you bring that message out to people, what do they need to know about Patricia and her life and, and what, you, what message you bring to the world? Well, I think for many years there was a lack of formation, especially in homes with the youth. Um, you know, a lot of parents, they are either ashamed to talk about sex, um, to talk about the beauty of sexuality and how sacred it is, or there's just, you know, a flat out lack of formation. And that's what kind of happened in my household as a child. I come from a Hispanic background and, and being Hispanic, it is pretty um, embarrassing and shameful to talk about sex. It's kind of sinful in a way. 
So I didn't receive any type of formation at home. Um, I didn't know that my virginity was a treasure. I didn't know what the word chastity was. I didn't know that my purity was very valuable. Um, so my education um, on sexuality, I received it in the in the sixth grade, and I was 12 years old. Um, and I remember going into school that day. Like I want, I want to remind everybody, I was 12 years old. I was still playing with Barbie dolls mm. at home after school. I mean, I still had dolls in my house, and I was watching cartoons. So I never thought about sex before. And when I get to school, there is a ton of condoms on my desk. There's a banana. And the sexual educators came to my school. They were from Planned Parenthood. And they said that they were going to teach us how to practice something called safe sex. Now, safe sex does not exist. It's a complete trap. I think it's a trap because these clinics, these abortion clinics, are looking for future abortion patients. So pro by promoting something called safe sex that does not exist, it's going to fail. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to protect you from any unwanted pregnancy or STD. And you get girls coming into their abortion clinics when they're older. They remember Planned Parenthood from their school when they were little. Um, and they come in, have their abortion. And Planned Parenthood, what they do is basically pass out condoms and birth control again so they can continue practicing safe sex. And then those same patients that just had one abortion will come back for their second or third. Mm -hmm. Being in this ministry, I've met many women that have had multiple abortions. I've met women that, ha that have had six abortions, eight. I mean, I've met women that have had over 10 abortions. So what happened in school um, was, you know, they, ta they, talk they taught us about abortion. They said it was a woman's right. Um, it was her choice. They told us it was not a baby until it was five months um, gestation. So back then in 1992, we didn't have the technology that we have today. We didn't have like the 45D ultrasound. We didn't have all these big pro-life movements. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have all these videos. When a doctor came into school and they told you this is what it is, you trust that doctor. You know, I have great respect for physicians and I'm sure most of us do. So you really believe that they want the best for you, that they're telling you the truth. And everything that they taught us that day in school, I thought it was the truth about sexuality. They really never talked about true love, authentic love. They never talked about chastity. They never talked about the heart. They basically showed you how to protect the body and, you know, and really not, you know, and it was false too. I mean, it really doesn't protect you from anything, but they never really talked to you about your feelings, your dignity, your worth, um, you as a person. Mm -hmm. So when I left that class, I just thought, okay, well, the day I find my true love, then the way I will show him that I love him is giving my myself and giving my body. That's what I thought true love was. So um, years passed by. My parents um, had issues in our family. I was very angry when my parents got a divorce, was very rebellious because I had anger inside of me. And was pretty much worldly, um, very material, really cared about how what I looked like, what I wore, what I drove, my goals, my career. Everything was me, 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 me. And I met uh, my first boyfriend. We started to practice safe sex. Of course, it failed after a couple of months. And I never thought I'd get pregnant. I mean, I thought I was being responsible because that's what they teach you. Um, you know, when you practice safe sex, you're being responsible. And somehow it, it didn't work. Mm -hmm and felt really nauseous and sick one day, took that test, the pregnancy test, when it came out positive, all these thoughts and feelings of fear overwhelmed me. And I really believe that the root of all abortion is fear. I'm alone. You know, my boyfriend just abandoned me. 
my dad's going to kill me. My mom's going to kill me. I don't have money. I don't have a job. Everything is fear. What am I going to do? Um, who's going to support me? I'm going to be shamed. And it's all fear. And I had all these thoughts in my head. And I thought it was just the biggest failure that I'm 19 years old. I am a straight A student. I had all these goals. And now I'm pregnant. My life is over. Everything I dreamed of, everything I wanted to accomplish, it's gone. But when I tell my boyfriend the news, he was really excited to be a father. And he gave me very encouraging words. I will take care of you. You will be okay with me. You are, are secure. I'm going to protect you. And those words of a man giving you that security and that encouragement, it really does give a woman the courage to say, yes, I'm not alone. I can do this. Mm -hmm. Because men were created for greatness. Men were created to protect the family, protect the child, and protect the woman. Mm -hmm. And, to, you know, I've, I've been in this ministry for about 14 years. I work with many women around the world that suffer in silence, their abortions. And I can say to you that the main cause of most of these cases is because they were left alone, abandoned by the man, or the man actually took them to go get an abortion. And we always think of abortion, we think of women, those women that have abortions. But what about the men? There are many men today that are also scared to be fathers. They don't want the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And most of the men either leave the woman or take them, and they are aborting. I mean, it takes two to tango. It takes mm -hmm. two for a pregnancy. And we always have to remember that men suffer after an abortion as well. They even mm -hmm. suffer the symptoms. But in this case, you know, he, he was very supportive. I went to the doctor, did my first ultrasound, and I saw that life was forming. And I saw that something was growing inside of me, and I was really happy. But months after, when I was four months, I was kind of peer pressured by my friends saying, you know, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're not ready to be a mom. This is not the time. Um, it's, you know, it's all about you. It's about your goals and your dreams. And your dad doesn't know yet. You know, you're going to shame your father and your family's going to laugh at you. So all that fear started to come back inside of my heart. And I'm like, they're right. This isn't the time. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to travel. So I decided to have an abortion. That was my solution to my problem. Now this was a problem and I needed a solution, a way out. So I did make an appointment at an abortion clinic in California. I didn't tell my boyfriend. I thought it was just easier for me to lie to him. You know, go ahead and do the abortion and just lie and say I had a miscarriage and have no conflict. Because I truly thought my boyfriend was Mexican. Mm -hmm. I truly thought that Hispanic people did not have abortions. You know, my dad has 14 brothers and sisters. My mom has 12 big families in Mexico. So I just thought that, you know, Hispanic people didn't abort. When I get to the abortion clinic, you have no idea how shameful it is when you get out of the car and you're about to walk into a building where they perform abortions. Even though the law says it's legal, even though these doctors say it's the best choice for you, there's something not right deep inside. When you feel shameful and you feel like it's going to be a secret and you're not going to tell anybody, it's because there's something not right. Mm -hmm. But I justified, okay, it's the law. Okay, you know, this is what the doctors are telling me but you feel this cloud of shame hover over you. And you know, and I feel, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. I feel, I still feel there's times in my, my, my story or times in my ministry where that shame wants to come back, mm -hmm. where it's just, it, it's bothering me, where it's not completely healed mm -hmm. um, because it's hurtful. Mm -hmm. And I go into this um, clinic, I just wanna go in there and get out of there and never think about this again. But to my surprise, John, the lobby was full of 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. They all had their appointment that day to have an abortion. I go up to the receptionist. I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't these kids 
aren't they supposed to be in school? It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday morning, and they're 13. I'm, you know, aren't you supposed to be like an adult? And the law in California and in many states in the U.S., a 13-year-old can actually go have an abortion without her, you know, their parents' consent. The parents don't have to know. They don't have a right to know. Mm. And I always tell parents this during my conferences. Can you imagine you're dropping your child off in junior high? You're thinking that your child's in school all day. And then you get this call that your daughter did not survive an abortion and she's not, no longer alive. I mean, that can possibly happen. Mm-hmm. You sign a consent form, John, right before your abortion saying, you can die during this procedure. And if you die, your family cannot sue us. And this is what women are agreeing to um, because they're so desperate to get rid of this problem. They'll do anything or pay anything. Mm-hmm. Went ahead and, you know, with the procedure, what encouraged me that morning, I was terrified because they don't give you instructions. They don't tell you what an abortion is. And the doctor comes in, you know, trying to encourage me. She says, look, I've had one abortion myself. Last year, I performed two abortions on my daughter. I'm a physician. I'm a mother. My daughter was okay. I'm okay. You're going to be fine. It's five minutes. You can survive five minutes. So I blocked myself that whole abortion. But I do remember hearing the vacuum noise. And I do remember feeling like something was sucked out of me. And there was something empty when I left. They gave me a big bag of condoms, a bag of birth control. That was the only post-care instructions is continue safe sex. And you might have some cramping here, some aspirin. That's all they tell you. They never tell you about post-abortion syndrome. They never tell you the mental disorders, the emotional disorders, the physical damage that can happen to you after an abortion. And if you look this up, the list is endless. I mean, it's a horrifying list. And I believe that if every woman knew about post-abortion syndrome, I don't think they'd have an abortion. And I don't think men would actually take their ladies to have an abortion. Um, It's very, very dangerous. And I started to feel, you know, I lied to my boyfriend. He wept over a loss. He was really, you know, affected by a loss. And I just, I wasn't myself anymore. I was very depressed. I felt very empty anxious. My emotions were like a roller coaster up and down. I would yell at anything, be irritated at anything, cry at anything. And my boyfriend at the time would be like, what's wrong with you? You're just, you, you're irritated. You're mad. You're just, you're just kind of like an emotional mess. And I would have, um, like traumatic moments where I would see a baby or a child in public and I couldn't stand it. And I couldn't stand to hear, you know, kids crying in public. And, um, you know, all these emotional disorders, like um, just uh, having these psychotic thoughts of not living anymore and really bad self-esteem after the first abortion. I didn't know what I was living or why I was going through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I just thought, hey, my parents are divorced. My family's kind of messed up and maybe it's that. But I never linked it to the abortion. What started to happen also was my boyfriend started to tell me I'm having nightmares I'm having nightmares of a baby calling me daddy, 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 like a little girl. He started to say that he was feeling really empty and like something was missing, depressive, um, emotional. And what was happening is he was also suffering post-abortion syndrome. Now, he didn't know he had an abortion. He did. But, you know, he was suffering the effects. Mm-hmm. And it would get me really upset. Like, hey, don't get upset. It was not a baby. If you're dreaming that, you know, it was just a sack of tissue, a blob of cells. You know, it's that's what they, they the doctors tell you. Mm-hmm. And um, we continued practicing safe sex. Now with the birth control pill, because I wanted to be extra responsible. Okay, the condoms didn't work. So now let me have this type of backup. 
um, the birth control pill. Every day at the same time, I take my pill. Now, years ago, I don't know if now, but years ago, I Googled cheapest condoms and I Googled, you know, low, low, um, what is it, quality birth control and Planned Parenthood came out to be number one. Um, so they know that kids are irresponsible. They're not going to take their pill at the same time and it's going to fail. And it did fail again for the second time. And this time it was like, what's going on? Like, Hey, I'm practicing. Why, why did this feel twice? Test came out positive since I was only a month pregnant. That Okay. It's literally a blot of cells. It's nothing. I'm not going to tell my boyfriend. Um, I just don't want to argue with him. He's going to want me to continue this pregnancy. It's not the time. I'm not going to tell my friends. That's embarrassing. I just had an abortion six months ago and I'm not going to go to the same clinic. I'm going to go to a different clinic because there's that shame. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, what are they going to think of me? Mm-hmm. And I went to Planned Parenthood this time. And when I went with them during my abortion, again, I closed my eyes. I said, this time it's going to be easy. Five minutes is it's, it's, it's easy. I did it one time. I can get through this a second time. And the abortionist was literally applauding me. And she said, wow. I can't believe you're not crying. Most women are crying during their abortions. There's women that faint. There's women that sweat. And most of the women kick during an abortion. And they make my job really hard. And you're so amazing. And you're making my heart, my job so easy. You are so courageous. And I applaud you for that. And at the time, John, I was the biggest people pleaser. I really cared about what the world thought of, of me. And I loved it when the world applauded me as well. Mm-hmm. So I felt, I know it sounds sick. When I got off that abortion table, I felt kind of good because I was a good patient. And then they kind of pampered me. They put me in this back room. They put a little robe on me, some fluffy socks, gave me a cup of tea, some cookies. And the nurses, not really nurses, but nurses were giving me a massage saying, you did an amazing job. Send me home with a big bag of condoms, big bag of birth control to continue practicing safe sex. Totally, totally appreciated their services. I thought Planned Parenthood were the bomb. Mm. Um, They always called my house to confirm appointments, but never said it was them. They would send me stuff in the mail and never say it was them. They would say it was like Jane, I don't know, Jane Downey or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they'd never put their name. I felt like they had my back. Like they were really respecting my privacy. Mm. And they'd always give me free contraceptive. That's why I thought, I just thought that they were awesome. Mm. And after that abortion, things got worse. I mean, mega psychotic suicidal thoughts. I really did contemplate my death. I mean, I just felt, there was times where I just felt like, you know, I'm just going to go into the kitchen, grab the biggest knife and just end it now. I was living this hellish misery inside and I didn't understand why. More anxiety, more depression. And then I noticed that my boyfriend was feeling even worse as well. And we were both suffering post-abortion syndrome. And our relationship was just a mess. But we continued to be together and continuing, you know, trying to be responsible and practice safe sex, you know, and it failed for a third time. And I know it's 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 kind of hard. I, it was hard for me to tell my story at first because it was not only one abortion. I have to talk about three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they judge you for one abortion, but what about three? Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of people saying, wow, one, okay, but three. But, you know, my story is a similar story to millions of women out there. There's so many women out there, millions of them that, that have this story that have had three or more abortions. And it's just a trap. It's a cycle that the society has put you in, or, you know, like I said, it's lack of formation. It's all lies. And it's a trap that they set up. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was inside of this trap. Mm -hmm. And by the third abortion, 
I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell my boyfriend now, but I don't want to feel guilty alone because you have these major guilty feelings inside. Mm. I want him to feel bad too. I'm going to tell him the truth and I'm going to ask him to go with me to have an abortion. So when I called him on the phone, I gave him the, the news. He was so excited that I was pregnant again. And I said, look, do not even, don't even get excited. I'm going to go have an abortion. So I was wondering if you want to come. And he stays quiet for a couple of seconds. And then I hear, but I don't want to have an abortion. I want to be a father. I don't want to have an abortion. And when he said those words to me, I started to yell in anger. I said, you are taking a right away from me. And you actually don't even have a right over my body. It's my body. It's my choice. And I thought he was the most selfish man because he only cared about what he wanted. He didn't care that I was going to lose my gold, my dreams, my career, my family was going to get mad. I just thought he was so selfish. And when he said that he didn't want to have an abortion, I felt like he was taking my right away. Mm. And unfortunately, what really did happen is that I took his right away. Mm -hmm. I took his right away to be a father. I took his fatherhood away. What about men? What about their rights? You know, I've met many men, John, that have told me, I stood in front of the clinic, Patricia, in front of the doors. I tried to save the life of my baby and I couldn't. Mm. I didn't have a voice. I didn't have a right. And I didn't, I couldn't do anything to save the life of my child. And it's really, really sad, John, because not only do the unborn, they don't have a voice most of the time. You know, thank God there's more pro-lifers out there. And, you know, this dark secret is actually coming to light and there's more people fighting. But actually men don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. You know, if that man wants to save the life of his baby, he is escorted out of that clinic by security or by policemen. He doesn't have a right. And when I do political debates, I go to different countries and I do a lot of political debates in Congress. Mm -hmm. I tell politician, you think you're giving a woman a right back, but this is really sad because you're taking men's right away. You're taking fatherhood away from men. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is today. I mean, men, I, I always wish there was a movement, John, maybe one day you can come up with it. <laughs> I, you know, there's all these radical feminists that say, you know, take your rosary off my, off my ovary and it's my body, my choice. What about men? Why don't men go out there and say, hey, I want my right to be a father. Where's my right? Where's my voice? You know, I wish there was this mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. that could be invented, you know, for men's rights mm -hmm. to be given back to them. Yeah, but it, after, right? Yeah, no, totally. I, I think that's a big part of the issue too, that especially men today, this whole concept of toxic masculinity and the fact that now when you do have men that are trying to rise to the, the call to greatness and to be the protector and servant of their families, well, they're not really men now right? They're, we've been so emasculated, right? So part of it is our issue. We've, we've abdicated our own responsibilities. We've failed our women and our family and our church in a big way. But now anybody that talks, I, I'm one of them, right? That talks about actual authentic masculinity, protecting our wives and our children, advocating for the unborn. It's like, no, we don't have anything to do with you, just like you said. And so we do need to to step up into that gap and to align ourselves with all these women who, and, and these, these children, right, that are being, you know, slaughtered on our watch, in our time, in our generation. Um, it, it, it is definitely all of our responsibility, but for the men out there, as Patricia just stated, that are listening and are watching is, listen to the plea from a woman, right? More than anything, right, is the, that, that cry, that desire for us men to step up, to 
advocate not just for them, but also for our own selves, our own fatherhood. We were given that paternity from our Heavenly Father, right? We were given that ability to give life, to be co-creators with every woman on this earth, right? That, that it, we're called to in the marital embrace. And we need to embrace that and we need to protect that and we need to, um, you know, shout from the mountaintop. So I would agree with you. And maybe we yeah. could start that movement together, right? Yeah. yeah. No, and raise <laughs> our sons that way. You know, Amen. I tell a lot of moms today, you know, I remember when my father was young, he was 25. You know, he had three children already. He had bought, a, you know, his first home. He was very responsible, hard worker. Mm-hmm. You don't really see that anymore today. You see a ton of even 40-year-old men playing video games all day. Mm-hmm. So what happens? You know, they don't learn how to be responsible. They don't have responsibi- responsibilities at home. They don't know how to, you know, what a job is and how to earn money. And so when they get their girls pregnant, you know, their girlfriend's pregnant, mm-hmm. well, they're freaking out. I mean, they don't know how to take care of their own, their own selves. <laughs> they don't know how to take care of a woman. They're not going to know how to take care of a baby. So the easy way out is, you know what, abortion. Mm-hmm. So we just have to really train our sons, mm-hmm. you know, our, our teens to be, you know, men again and take that, you know, and learn how, what responsibility is. And Amen. I think that's something, you know, a tip that I give to parents all the time. Anyhow, after this third abortion, I mean, I was a disaster. I left the boyfriend. I didn't want to remember the, you know, the abortions. I just wanted to run away, far away and start over. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. I moved um, from one city to another city. I actually moved to Sacramento, California. And back, I always say this to kids, back in 1999, when you look for a job, it was through the newspaper. I had to go buy the newspaper and <laughs> look through the job, right? And look mm-hmm. for listings and there was no internet. So, um, I saw that in these big letters that Planned Parenthood urgently needed a bilingual um, back office nurse. Now, at the time, I was a receptionist at a medical a, a medical office. I was not a nurse, didn't have the credentials, never went to nursing school. But I decided, you know, I'm just going to call them and see if I can get an interview. I can translate. I can file. I can do something in Spanish. I speak both languages fluently. I had my interview. They were so excited I had had three abortions. They said that that was going to really encourage girls to come to their abortion appointments. Um, They said, you know, we've never had anybody speak Spanish here before, but 90% of our patients are Spanish-speaking women here in California um, that do not know any English. So to my surprise, I'm like, wait, you know, I thought that Hispanics didn't have abortions, Mm -hmm. but 90% of abortions, they did 50 abortions a week, were Hispanic women that did not know how to speak any English. But now looking back, these women, okay, before I started to work there, were signing consent forms they did not understand, mm-hmm. um, that they could die, that there could be complications. During the abortion, they had there was a big language barrier. They couldn't speak English to even ask the doctor, hey, what's going on? And if they had a complication afterwards, many women hemorrhage. I've seen it. Many women have horrible complications after. They didn't have the language to call up and say, hey, I'm bleeding to death here. What do I do? And they're not going to tell their friend, hey, I just had an abortion. Will you translate for me? Because it's so shameful. You don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and just thinking about this, this is very unsafe. There's nothing safe about this. So they give me the job and I'm totally excited because it was double the amount I was getting at my last job. I mean, it was a very high pay. The first day I started to work there was a Monday. My job was to counsel all the girls and all the women to prepare them for their abortions. I was instructed to tell them not to be scared that I had had three abortions and that it was just a sack of tissue. You call it a sack of tissue. You call it a blob of cells. You never call it a baby. You can't even use that word here. You don't call it a baby. You can't even use the word he, she, mother, father. 
you can't even use the word fetus because fetus gives dig, um, human dignity. You call it an it, a blob of cells, whatever you want. Just it, it has to be an it. It's not a human. Mm-hmm. They told me never to let the woman look at her ultrasound. This is very important. If she cries, if she begs, the scream must face the doctor. This was kind of weird to me because they're cha- they're training me how to change my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'd worked at a doctor's office. Um, they trained me not to be friends with the patient, not to ever look at their tears. Because if I look at their tears, I'm going to have to offer other options. I'm going to have to tell them, hey, if you're crying, you don't have to do this. You could do these other options. There is no uh, option other than abortion. So I was always trained before Planned Parenthood to be you know, compassionate, honest, patient cares, number one. And here they're Mm -hmm. kind of telling me the opposite, which I thought was kind of weird, but I didn't really get what was going on. Well, the abortion day came and that was probably the most horrifying day of my life. It is one step before going to hell, working Mm -hmm. in a place like this. Mm -hmm. What I saw that day, that first day I had to assist abortions. I was immediately brought into the manager's office when the day started she told me that I didn't know the abortionist, that he wasn't a, a, a doctor that actually worked at Planned Parenthood because if a woman did die during her abortion, um, well, you know, the abortionist is not really from Planned Parenthood, so, you know, it's less chaotic for them. The abortionist basically that they hired would jump from different states, just going to all these different abortion clinics, kind of running away and, you know, and, you know, not really tracking that abortionist down so they wouldn't have, you know, any, any big lawsuits against them. Mm-hmm. They told me, to never tell a soul what happens behind the doors of Planned Parenthood. And then she said, you never tell the mothers after their abortion, we throw their babies away in the garbage. And you never tell the fathers that are waiting in the lobby that after each abortion, we throw his babies away in the garbage. Mm -hmm. They even acknowledged the father. Do you understand? I didn't understand. I just stayed quiet. I started to feel fear in my heart. And it was when I had to take the first patient. She was 15 years old, three months. And during her abortion, I could tell you, I had to stand behind the abortionist. It was the most violent act I think I've ever witnessed. Mm -hmm. When he takes his instruments out, I mean, they're clamps, scissors, blades, curettes. It didn't look good. When he takes the tip out of the vacuum machine it's basically like a long metal stick and on the tip of the tip it's a blade it's a small tiny blade and when he inserts this inside of the womb of the patient and this patient starts kicking and screaming and he's dodging her kicks and he's got this blade inside of her womb that's when it dawned on me wait a minute he cannot see inside the womb wait a minute how does he know he's you know, he has the bag of or blob of cells. How does he know he's taking everything out that he needs to take out? And wait, how does he know he's not, you know, damaging her womb and, and perforating her womb? And mm-hmm. wait, it's a blind man's surgery. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, would you ever let a doctor come and tell you, good morning, I'm Dr. Sandoval. I will be performing heart surgery on you. Before I do that, let me turn the lights off. Let me put a handkerchief over my eyes. Let me take my blade out and then I'll start the incision course not. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't. But women are so desperate to have an abortion and to get rid of this problem that they're willing to do this. And what they do is they calculate the abortion by time. Okay, it's five minutes. I think, think I'm done. When have you heard a surgeon in the middle of surgery going, all right, everybody, I think I'm done. No, he's done when he's sure he's done. Mm. But this, you know, abortion, like I said, it's a blind man surgery. They have to calculate it and guess. 
So they guess by the amount of blood that comes out of the womb into the cylinder glass. This cylinder glass is opened after the abortion, after the machine is turned off, and all the contents fall into the bag. Now, I was hired as a nurse. You guys are probably wondering, why am I in the surgery room? I was hired as a nurse with no credentials. They said they would train me at Planned Parenthood. I was literally thrown into this abortion with no skills, no training. I'm, I mean, this is a surgical abortion. It's surgery. And I'm just standing there not knowing what's going on, assisting a doctor with no credentials. The nurse that was training me was also a fake nurse. She was 18 years old. She was also trained on the spot. She takes me to this little room behind Planned Parenthood. And when we close the door and in front of us is like this glass bowl, mm. I dumped the contents in there and I thought I would find the blob of cells. Mm -hmm. But to my surprise, John, she puts these tweezers inside. They're called forceps. And she lifts up to the light a little hand. And she said, this is part number one. We need five parts of the baby so we can tell the abortionist that the abortion was successful. And the first thing I noticed, John, were the fingerprints. And when I saw those fingerprints, I thought to myself, nobody else in the world has my fingerprint because I'm authentic, irrepeatable. That makes me special out of everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. That makes me human. Mm -hmm. And then she started to search and search and she found the leg and then the next leg, the next arm. What really broke my heart was the fifth piece. It was the head. You can tell by this facial expression that this baby was in pain, that this baby was in anguish. This baby's mouth was wide open because this baby fought for his or her life. This baby yelled, this baby wanted to live, but there was nobody there that can hear that baby. And there was nobody there that was defending that baby's life. Mm -hmm. And when I saw all these baby parts inside of the garbage cans, when I saw, they, they actually freeze those parts because they can't throw it away in the garbage behind the clinic because if a mom goes out there, opens a garbage bin, then she can see her baby there. They actually froze them for about a month, and then this company would come and dispose and take them to the dumpsters. When you see all these babies, John, why? I, you know, Now I'm like, it's sexual disorder because a lot of kids don't know what chastity is. Even adults don't know what chastity is. I mean, I have many women say, I cheated on my husband. I had to get an abortion. I can't forgive myself. Men saying, I took my lover to have an abortion. I'm married. Um, you know, and they, and they tell me with honesty and they tell me, you know, asking for help. But because of our sexual disorder, who pays the price of their life? It's those babies that are innocent and it's not fair. Mm -hmm. It isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, they pay for our, our, our consequences, our disorders. Mm -hmm. It was so horrific, John, in this place. It's literally women screaming. Women that would faint. I remember women would be dragged down the halls all the time, blood everywhere, women hemorrhaging. It was so nightmarish. And I would look around and I would look at my coworkers going, is anybody feeling this horror I'm feeling inside? Does anybody see that these are babies? Mm -hmm. Why are, why is everybody, you know, at, you know, talking about what they're going to have for lunch? Why is everybody singing during an abortion? What's going on here? And what I came to understand is that these workers that work for abortion clinics are also traumatized. Mm -hmm. They're so traumatized that they're they're insensitive. They don't feel anything anymore. Mm -hmm. They're numb. And we gotta pray for those people to come out because they're also victims of abortion. You know, they're also manipulated to work there and paid a high salary so they could stay. And I left, John, I left probably before a month when I saw a six month 
you you know, a 16 year old girl that she was six months pregnant with twins. I, I just couldn't see siblings um, in a petri dish in a garbage. I just couldn't do it. So I left, and I didn't know God. You know, I, I grew. I was baptized Catholic. I kind of knew about God when I went to CCD. Mm. Um, I felt like I had a beautiful relationship with God the Father, but then I forgot about Him for so many years. And I started to do drugs because, you know, my refuge was in the world. It wasn't in God. Mm -hmm. So heavily addicted to methamphetamine. I lost everything. And I ended up on the streets for three years, just completely traumatized by my abortions, traumatized by this place and just lost. And it was one day when I was on a sidewalk curb and I just, I was, I hit rock bottom. I didn't have anything to eat. There was nobody, there was no more friends around me. Um, my friends, you know, they, they got into an argument with me and they left, my drug addict friends and not really good friends. Mm -hmm. And I was alone and I was crying because I thought to myself, I'm alone. I have nothing. What's going to become of my life? And when I started to weep and weep and weep, I started to remember God. I started to remember that long ago when I was really young, you know, I used to talk to God the Father and that I knew, you know, that he loved me. And that moment, when I started to remember him, I felt his presence. I really did feel that he was looking down from heaven on me. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to look up and I told God, I don't know who you are, but I know that you exist. And you're the only thing I have. I want to thank you because you gave me a beautiful family and childhood. And I just ruined my life because of the choices I've made. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And it was instantly that he answered my call. You know, the Bible says to cry out to God, cry out for help and he will come mm -hmm. to your aid. And that's exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. Well, this young girl runs out of a restaurant. She holds me inside of her arms firmly and she looks into my eyes. And now these eyes were full of mercy and her smile was full of love. And she said, Jesus loves you. I'm a waitress at that restaurant. You were crying on the street and I pray for you. And God told me to tell you that he will never abandon or forsake you. He will be with you until the end of time. And everything that you've done, he forgives you. And you know, John, wow. when do we go out to somebody on the street and say, hey, Jesus loves you. You know, you're suffering and our Lord loves you. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to even do that. Mm -hmm. And that young girl took me home. Mm. She took me home after three years. She took me to my father's house. Mm. And uh, I met up with my mom after. And thank God my mom came back to the Catholic Church um, when I was missing she was on her knees for three years in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. She offered every mass, every rosary, and she fasted for me. She did many sacrifices. And I believe that because of Jesus' mercy, but really because of my mom's prayers, that's what really saved me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, you know, I heard that story up front and personal, and then it still moves me every time I hear the story because it's just the, 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 the story of a lost soul and the return to the Heavenly Father, right? The fact that we in our own sinful nature um, can feel as lost as you were. And I, I can definitely relate to a lot of those feelings in different ways, of course. Um, but that moment that you described, the, you know, being loved by the Heavenly Father, feeling that embrace, feeling forgived, uh, forgiven, feeling the mercy, like I definitely, I know that feeling wholeheartedly. And I think, you know, the story that you tell, Patricia, um, as you know, as 
powerful and impactful it is. I don't even have the right words to even articulate it because it's just, there's so many facets to it. I mean, we're getting the condensed version, right, um, of, of all of this. And I think the message that a lot of people need to understand and know is that God does love you. And he loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than the circumstance that you think you're in. He loves you more than anybody on this entire earth. He created you, right? We come from God. And what he has planned for you and your life is so much more than you can even imagine, right? It's, gre- it's greater than your greatest dream for yourself. Um, because I look at the life of Patricia Sandoval now, right? Who's a mom, who's a wife, who is the, the voice of so many innocent children who are being slaughtered today. Um, and yet, you, you know, you were on the other side, right? I, 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 I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm from Guam, and most of my viewers know that, but I'm from the island of Guam. So when you think about Hispanics or any other culture like that, I can relate because we're very culturally Catholic, and, um, but we're just so much we don't know. I suffer from poor catechesis and went through a lot of trauma and abuse myself and lost myself in the world and, and, and self-medicated and did all those things that you're talking about. But, um, but look at what God can do. Right. So when you want to talk about the message of hope, hope in Christ, that oh, your story is is so powerful just because all those people that are out there, like you said, that are still in the grips of Satan, that are still in that bondage, right, enslaved to that that guilt, that shame, um, the, the sin that was committed because of whatever reason. Right. And there is no sin greater than God's mercy. You ha- that's what your story says. Right. Is there is no sin greater than God's mercy. Right. But you got to give it to him. You got to take it to him. You got to be transfigured. You have to be transformed and ask, Lord, I, I don't even know what this means, but I know that I'm yours. Right. Um, I know that I want to do your work. Um, so the reason I chose the reason I chose uh, transfigured, I, I asked God, like, what do you want me to call it? It's your book. It's your, it's your story of, of mercy. Mm-hmm. Now, we always hear, uh, you know, Best, you know, transformation, be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I kind of feel like that's a little superficial. I don't know. I mm-hmm. feel that is, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could look good, you can exercise, you can eat well and everything. But I tell people all the time, what about you be no version of yourself? Mm-hmm. What about you just put yourself aside and you just die to yourself and let yourself be transfigured? Cause it goes deeper. Transfiguration is deep. Mm-hmm. And why don't you let Jesus live inside of you? And so when people look at you, they don't look at you anymore. They look at him through you. Amen. And that's a true transfiguration. It's like a deep piercing in the soul. It goes beyond transformation. So I always tell people, let yourself be transfigured by God. Amen. So it's funny. My wife, Nicole, and I were just talking about this idea of best version of yourself. Because, you know, even my, even in my own idea of my best version of myself, I still fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm like, I don't even want to be the best version of myself. I want to be the, a child of God, a soldier for Christ. I want to be Christ-like. Right. I want to emulate everything that Christ is, everything that the lives of the saints speak to. And so I would agree with you there, sister, because I'm like best version of myself. Forget that noise, because we subscribe to that. Right. Like, oh, the best version of myself is the most educated, you know, the best in shape, the best looking, the best whatever. And it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. What I want to look, I want my life to be conformed to the cross to the passion, exactly. death, and resurrection of our Lord. I want our lives to speak to that hope. And that's a powerful thing about, and I want to transition to this just as we start to kind of wrap up, is the life of Patricia now, right? All of that, if you just stopped right there and just said, okay, boom, this is it, and here you are, most people would think, okay, that's enough, right? Like if you just took it up to that point where that, that, that brave young woman came out and said, Jesus loves you, 
and you're forgiven. And, and um, that in itself is a happy story because you came home to God. But no, you didn't stop there, right? You travel the world, um, the world, I mean, internationally, and speak to all of this. And I always commend, it's all, I, I couldn't even imagine, um, in all of our, uh, those of us who are evangelists and those who go about the world doing the work of whatever the Lord's calling you to, um, we all know we deal with our, our, own, um, our own experience of brokenness and woundedness and, and things we had to overcome. Um, but it, and there's a balance between how much you share in your heart, right? Which is um, some stuff is reserved for God and you alone. Um, right. But that's a big deal because you're, you're going out there completely vulnerable, um, much like our Lord was on the cross, stripped down, battered, bruised, scourged, beaten. Um, what is the life of Patricia Sandoval today? Well, you know, I did have a beautiful experience. I healed um, at a Rachel's Vineyard retreat, mm. and I had the grace to see my three children. Mm. And when they called out to me, mother, mm. I mean, I never thought that I would hear that word. I thought I was a murderer. I was an assassin. I heard mother, and I saw joy in their faces. And they told me they were praying for me in heaven, mm. and they were waiting for me. And Our Lady was taking care of them. Mm. Um, so when I saw their mercy, you know, I had two options after that. I basically, one, I could keep the mercy and the forgiveness God gave me and the healing to myself and just, okay, you know, I healed from my abortions. Now I can move on with my life. Or two, I can actually tell the world the truth. My story can be ammunition um, against abortion. I can actually repair the damage that I've done. Mm -hmm. I can actually give back to God. I mean, I owe him so much. So much has been forgiven. I can actually do something uh, to repair everything and do a good with all the bad that had happened. And I opted for the second choice knowing that I would be persecuted, that I would probably be thrown in jail by Planned Parenthood because they did try to come after me a couple times, um, that I'd lose family members, friends, I'd be laughed at, criticized, like you said, stripped down, you know, scored, scourged, and mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened. But our, our call as Christians, the definition of a Christian is basically to be courageous, to speak, um, to even die for what you believe in, not to fear. And, you know, I decided to do that. And many women, I started to um, evangelize in Latin America. Mm -hmm. My story went out first um, back in 2007, all over the world, but the U.S. I, I don't know why, but my story <laughs> went out in Latin America because there's not many pro-life speakers. I think I'm the only one still. Um, many women and men needed to heal. So, um, you know, yes, it's a tough cross to carry, mm -hmm. but you know what? God really does reward. Mm -hmm. And our, I mean, our greatest reward is actually in heaven. That's where our crown of glory is. Mm -hmm. But God is so faithful and good that he did give me an amazing husband. Um, that's very courageous because, you know, he's gotten laughed at. He said, hey, are you, you're the one that's, you know, married to that woman that had three abortions and was on drugs. And he's like, no, I'm married to that woman that has the courage and more pants than I do to tell her <laughs> cares. And, you know, he, it had to be somebody that courageous too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and God gave us the gift of a, of a daughter, which we're so, I, I mean, it's such just a big blessing. And I think that she's also just a sign of hope for many women mm -hmm. um, that God is faithful. And for the women that can have children after an abortion, the fact that you're even alive, I mean, that is just mercy in itself. And, you know, that's a miracle that you're even alive after an abortion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, now my mission is not just by myself. My mission is now with a family. Mm -hmm. um, and that's who I am today now. I feel like my story is a little bit more complete because now I have um, just a very loving, supportive husband, a beautiful daughter. And now my ministry is with my family, just like yours, mm -hmm. your, your beautiful family. Yeah, I think it was, like I said, it, I've been blessed to at least know you for the last several years, just been, since you were able to participate in our Relentless Conference. And 
to see the transformation of you, not just in ministry, the ministry in and of itself speaks to itself. And I think um, I'm already I'm already proud of the work that you do. And I commend you all for the, the stuff you do, because um, there's there's not a lot of folks. I know it's growing. The pro-life movement is growing. Um, but in, in the end, we've got a lot of making up to do with 60 million babies, you know, since Roe versus Wade already. Can I can I can I just add something you to that? You sure can, yeah. Sixty million babies, actually, sixty million generations. Because when one baby is mm-hmm. aborted, a whole that whole generation, maybe that baby could have been a, mo- a mother or a father, a great grandfather. I mean, that baby probably had a lineage, and so we've mm-hmm. aborted. I mean, more than sixty million uh, generations. So that's right. just a lot of lives that have been aborted. Yeah, and I think so. I want to I want to hone in on, on a specific thing you said about making up. Right. And I think if there was anything and I'll, and I'll let you comment on this, too, because, you know, I, myself as a prodigal son and a wayward sinner who came back to God, um, the one thing that I do preach about a lot is reparation and there's reconciliation first. Right. That you get reconciled with our Heavenly Father, primarily through the grace of the sacraments, get whatever mental health it needs that you need to get taken care of. But go through that spiritual, emotional, mental healing you need to go through. And definitely through the sacrament of reconciliation, but right along that line is reparation. Is that we are called to, even as in the catechism states about being making making right what was wrong, right? Whether it's blood on our own hands or blood in the hands of other people, like you said, these these abortionists, these people who work in Planned Parenthood, they're obviously in the grips of Satan, right? Um, they obviously believe wholeheartedly what they're doing is the best thing. Um, and, and that's evil. Even though it's intrinsically evil, uh, we don't want our brothers and sisters to end up in hell. Um, and so we want to be able to try. To, I mean, that's real love, right? It's to say, look, you are lost. You're a lost child. But I've been there. I've been there in the grips of Satan. I've been there um, uh, subscribing to the culture. So I, I do want to say that, you know, g- God bless you for the reparation you're trying to make up for because there's a lot there we got so much work to do in this area of pro-life and i i feel very encouraged with the likes of yourself and many others right that uh, you know i think of obviously abby johnson and the unplanned movie that just came out and and the, the reviews it's getting there i think of um is it ryan bomberger from radiance foundation right so so some of these other individuals that are that are just taking that message out to uh, lila rose and all you know just all of those individuals david delayden who we need to pray for uh, oh, what's that He's a hero. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, you know, as a 26-year-old young man who exposed Planned Parenthood like that. And um, I, I think there's all of these stories, and, and there couldn't be enough. There's plenty more that we need in, in God's army, especially for these 60 million generations and going that, um, that we've continued to eliminate from the face of this earth. So, um, Patricia, what, what else do you have? What's the, the hope of message for um, both the women, but also the men, the, the, the mothers and the fathers out there? If you had you know, your Reader's Digest version soundbite of a message of hope for them. What do you tell them for those who have been victims to the tragedy of abortion? Um, what's your message for them? I always say that there's there's always hope after abortion. You know, like we were just talking about, there's no sin greater than God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I believe, I believe with my whole heart that those children are in heaven. I believe that, you know, they will see those children again. Not all is lost. You know, I thought for many years, my children are lost. They ended up in a trash can. I know. Um, but I have that faith and I know that I have that certainty that I will be with them in eternal present one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, I just want to tell them that it, it's a process, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take 
couple years to heal, but not to be scared. There's a lot of people that write to me all the time and they're even scared to go to confession. They're scared to go to a retreat to heal. They're so full of shame. And like you said, they're mm-hmm. imprisoned mm-hmm. and, you know, by the chains of Satan, not to be scared. Do not fear. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not the only ones that this has happened to mm-hmm. go out there, heal, go to confession, go to a retreat, a, a post board of healing retreat. And there is so much hope and joy. I am living witness of that. Mm -hmm. And I also, this is what I also want to bring up to people. We are all called to defend life. I feel that especially men and women that have suffered an abortion. Mm -hmm. John Paul II once said that the new prophets of life are women and men that share their story, that share their story of an abortion, that they can actually abolish abortion. I feel that abortion is a very grave sin. And if so much has been forgiven, you know, I do feel that we do need to serve God and give back. Maybe we're not all called like myself to get on a stage and a microphone, Mm -hmm. but be part of the movement. Mm -hmm. You know, your story is ammunition. You know, what God has forgiven is ammunition against abortion, against Satan. It, I mean, it, it can help save so many lives. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember John also, and, and this is what God brought up to me about two weeks ago during prayer. You know, I am like, I have like purgatory phobia. I don't want to be in purgatory too, too long. <laughs> so I always ask God, please show me my sins. Like bring it on. Like I need to like know more stuff that offends you. Like just bring it to light. Mm-hmm. And God told me this. He said, repeat after me. I confess almighty brother and to you, my brothers and sisters that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, what I've done and what I have failed to do. Mm-hmm. Now those words were like, bam, like (laughs) highlighted. What have you failed to do? Mm -hmm. What if one day judgment day comes, you know, your day comes where you're going to move on to the next life. And God says, Hey, John, I purposely put you in, you know, to live in this generation. And in this generation that I put you in, they were killing and slaughtering babies in the wombs. Mm -hmm. You were driving by, you know, Planned Parenthood on your way to work. You know, these abortion clinics were in your neighborhood. What did you do for them? Mm Mm-hmm. What did you do for them? It's sometimes we forget to confess a mission of sins, things that that we haven't done, that we didn't have the courage to do when God called us to do, or we just put it aside. Or you know what? That's not my thing. You know, defending life, that's that's for pro-lifers. We are going to be held accountable for things that we haven't done, especially when there's a crisis like abortion in our generation. So I just want to encourage everybody Mm -hmm. to not be afraid to be what we're called to be Christians. And Christians are called to run against the current and to be courageous. And don't be afraid um, to, you know, to defend life. It's so beautiful because when you help save just one life, you know, a whole generation is saved. Like I said, mm-hmm. they're beautiful fruits. I always tell people, Hey, the day I die and I'm not on this earth anymore, my fruits will never die because those baby that's those babies that have been saved. I mean, those generations are going to live on, mm-hmm. you know, and don't ever doubt that that rosary you're praying outside of the clinic or that rosary you're praying for the unborn is not saving a soul. God will show us in heaven because of your prayers, all the babies that were saved because of your prayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say, you know, there isn't, there, there's no such thing as the pro-lifers, right? Um, where if we're Christians, we're all pro-lifers. We're all, we all believe in the sanctity and dignity of the human person, that every life is cherished and uh, of God, and that it's God who's the author of life that dictates the, 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 the end and the beginning of that life. And I'd say for everybody out there, to Patricia's point, is that we can find different ways. Definitely in prayer, we can unite in prayer, rosaries. When you drive by 
uh, an abortion clinic, are you saying a prayer as you drive by just like you would? Um, you know, because it does take true courage. Um, but I think it's G.K. Chesterton. I'll mess up the, I just saw this quote the other day. But he says, courage is somewhat of a contradiction in and of itself because it's a firmness to live with the readiness to die. Right. Um, and so it's that conviction that we have that we that we we're willing to risk this life for eternal life. And I think the more that you can do that, right, no greater love than this, but to lay down one's life for that, for the love of a brother or sister. And so, um, you know, I commend all the work that you're doing out there. I can keep you continuously in prayer because that is that is in the trenches with the devil and his minions um, uh, when you're when you are fighting that satanic intrinsic evil that's out there. Um, and I have up there, just I know you can't see it, dear sister, but the best way to find you would be I have there PatriciaSandoval.com, right, is your website. And I know you can go to the, either English or Spanish. I know you've got a big, obviously, a huge Latin America following, a huge um, Spanish uh, following as well. Um, but Patricia has, we were blessed to have her come and speak. And I'm telling you, it's changed the life of especially the youth, especially in the culture today, because what they're told um, by even some within the church, right, that this cultural piece of pro-life and abortion and all this other stuff is, is, is okay and it, and, it, and it can coexist with our Catholic faith. And it's people like you, dear sister, especially within the Hispanic community, um, that need to hear that message. Because if we wake up, especially our cultural Catholics, you wake up the island of Guam, you wake up the country of Mexico, you wake up all of Latin America, that's a sleeping giant, right, that you can say, hey, let's all get active um, as Christians and not just be the best version of ourselves, right, but be Christ-like and bring Christ to the rest of the world. So uh, what other information do you have? So patriciasandoval.com, is there any other way that, that we need to share with the viewers out there? Yeah, they can actually, my email, my contacts on there, so they can they can send me an email if they have a question or if they want a speaking engagement also. And I have um, social media, I'm on Facebook. You can I have like a pro-life page, you can put a like. And I have an Instagram account, that's patriciasandoval.b. Okay. They can uh, search me on social media as well. Yeah, they have some uh, fake ones out there. So don't you got to go to the Patricia Sandoval <laughs> dot V. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, wait a minute. Somebody's trying to jump on the, the, the Patricia Sandoval bandwagon and do something wrong out there. So um, but dear sister, hey, thank you so much for participating and, and joining me. Um, I've been meaning to catch up with you for some time. You had a, a, an, an impact on my own family. Right. And so I think that's that's a big deal. Um, for me personally, because you, you changed the hearts of a lot of people in our community here in Northern California. Um, you changed a lot of hearts, including the one here and me and in, in my own family life. Um, we continue to hold up you and your family um, as, as you continue to do that work. And, uh, you know, I look forward to continued, you know, friendship and, 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 and you know, just working together, working together for sure. Yeah. So God, may God continue to bless you and keep you in yours um, and your ministry. Thank you. God bless you. And um, I also have you in my prayers. And thank you for everything you do with the youth, with men especially. And God bless all of your work, John. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, sister. True faith, real talk. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. Continue the conversation online. Visit johnsublon.com. Until next time, get holy or die trying. Godspeed. Godspeed.